Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, April 9th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Great to talk to you guys. Apologies in advance for our less than perfect sound quality. We are still getting used to this whole virtual thing. And a special shout out to our ace engineer, Francis Ying, who literally makes all of this possible. So let us start with what the federal government is doing or not doing to combat the coronavirus. The acting inspector general of the Department of Health and Human Services put out a survey of hospitals that suggested they still weren't getting important things they need, like personal protective gear and tests. Earlier this week, some hospitals said they were finally getting ventilators, but running out of the drugs needed to sedate patients on the breathing machines. And small businesses trying to collect the loans promised by the bill Congress passed said they were being turned away by the banks that had promised to make those loans. And yet, in his daily briefing every day, President Trump says all those things were fake news and the federal government is doing just great. So what do we actually know about how the federal government is handling this crisis? Pick any part you would like. Alice, you're smiling. I thought the inspector general's report was really revealing. One, the interviews were quite recent. They were in late March. And so it's a pretty accurate picture of what's still going on right now. And it shows that all of the shortages hospitals were um, ringing the alarm about several weeks ago have not been resolved, even though there have been some efforts to get them the equipment they need. It just hasn't been enough. The report showed that equipment that arrived from the federal government, whether it's masks or ventilators, hasn't been enough. And some of the shipments that have arrived have been defective, unusable, expired, etc. And uh, you mentioned that there are shortages of the drugs needed to keep people on ventilators. There's also shortages of people who know how to operate them. Um, Not every medical professional is trained in that specific skill, and yet that's what's most needed right now. And so I, I think the reaction we've seen from the president is a lot of the sort of attack the messenger, shoot the messenger uh, behavior, whether the messenger is an inspector general creating a report like this, whether it's a, a reporter, we've seen a lot of lashing out at reporters, or whether it's a, a governor um, who has, you know, said we're not getting what we need from the federal government. And and we should clarify the the president when he was beating up on this report was suggesting that this was uh, a staffer who was hired during the Obama administration. Actually, this is someone who's been at the Department of Health and Human Services for twenty years and worked through the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration. So and was, who was appointed to BIG by the Trump administration. Yeah, <laughs> not exactly, uh, you know, a partisan hack, as the, the president basically suggested. Um, and again, page, I mean, yeah. the, the interviews were with hundreds of hospital administrators around the country. This wasn't this inspector general editorializing. No, it was a survey. <laughs> right. 
Paige, you've been talking to people around the country. What are you hearing? It, it just feels like a lot of times the administration is kind of a step behind where we need to be or even where a lot of the governors are. Um, and there's been a lot of bureaucracy, too. My colleagues reported on just the difficulties um, and the hangups in getting a lot of these medical supplies to FEMA. And they've been finding, you know, supplies of, of masks and ventilators and all these kind of unexpected places. But um, some of the agencies have reached out to FEMA and said, hey, we've got these supplies and FEMA has been um, unresponsive or less responsive. And so um, there's not, you know, these supplies aren't getting transferred very quickly. Um, I think what we've seen with New York is they've been able to kind of fend off the shortages by getting some ventilators from other places. I think China had sent them some, um, Cuomo had said, and then Washington State sent some ventilators as well. Um, And California did too. Yeah. And so, you know, they've been able to reach out to other places in uh, New York in particular. Um, and, And we're really fortunate that, you know, some of the states that adopted these social distancing measures early on and have been able to sort of flatten the curve. Um, are now um, able to kind of reach out and help other states. So, I, you know, I've talked to some providers in Washington state. Uh, I actually talked to the doctor who cared for the first COVID patient there back in January. And, um, you know, he told me now they're at a point where um, about only about half of their ventilators are in use right now. Um, and so they they certainly are doing okay capacity-wise. Um, but I think that's unique to some of these states that, you know, Washington, California, that did come out like a week or two before New York and some of the other states and said people needed to stay at home. Um, But, you know, it's been really notable through all of this, how what a patchwork response we've had and how it's been the individual governors and mayors making decisions about how strongly to urge people to stay home, about how to shut down businesses, what kinds of businesses should be shut down. I mean, there are um, significant differences state to state in terms of even which businesses are considered essential. And some of the southern states that have been less responsive um, to the crisis, you know, places like hair salons are considered essential, um, whereas you had more of a total lockdown in, say, San Francisco and L.A., whose mayors were really the first people out of the gate back in the middle of March to do a shutdown. Um, and so, as a result, you know, some places we're seeing encouraging news where that curve seems to be flattened. We're still seeing, I know that this week we saw some maybe initial signs of good news in New York that the at least the, the rate of increase is diminishing, although we're still in the very, very early stages of that. Um, but then I think there's a lot of anticipation around what are we going to see in other places like Florida, like Detroit, um, you know, Louisiana's had a real problem in New Orleans with spiking cases. It, it's it's kind of like going across the country in in like a wave. And so just because maybe there's good, good signs in one area of the country, there's other parts of the country where perhaps we're just at the beginning of the spike. Do you guys feel like if the federal government had been sort of on top of this sooner? And I mean, I still I watch the briefings every day and I still don't get the feeling that I know what the the battle plan is. You know, the president keeps talking about how this is a war, but I do not have a feel for how they are waging this war. It seems to not just change from day to day. It seems to change from within each briefing. 
Absolutely. All of our reporting um, indicates that they're, they're really just thinking in these short-term bursts. You know, they had the 15-day plan, and now they have this 30-day plan, and now there's disagreement about whether or not to order people to go back to work for finance, you know, economic reasons rather than public health reasons. And so it's it's just, it's like you said, it's this very short-term thinking. There's no overarching national plan on any of these fronts, whether it's on acquiring and distributing ventilators, whether it's on how to ease social distancing and when and what signs to look for, we still aren't adequately testing everyone who needs to be tested. And so, um, like Paige said, there's really just this patchwork. There's still states that haven't implemented stay-at-home orders still today. And so it's just this been this scramble where everybody is making their own decisions. I don't really see any like governors or mayors or, or of course, Trump himself giving any real clear guidance on the future, what the future is going to look like. Like, are we talking about reopening the economy in two months? Are we talking about partially reopening the co- the economy? What What is June going to look like? What is July going to look like? I don't think anybody has a good idea. And I think a, b- a big reason for that is we're still trying to collect data. We're even trying to understand how long is it going to take to flatten the curve? How effective is the social distancing, um, you know, what is the infection rate? How many people have uh, immunity to it? How many people don't? Um, but I, I, I do think where you've seen a clear difference between the way Trump is responding to this and say someone like Andrew Cuomo is in a lot of the rhetoric and you sort of see Trump in kind of his usual style. It's like, it's almost like Jekyll and Hyde. Like he seems like one person one day and another person the next day. And one moment you hear him, you know, praising the governors for their response. And then the next day you hear him going after them and criticizing them for asking for more supplies. I mean, this is a really hard um, pandemic to understand because it's a new virus and we're still even learning how it spreads. Um, I mean, you look back in January at some of the things that were being said about the virus. I mean, even Fauci had made some statements saying he doesn't didn't expect widespread transmission. Um, the World Health Organization and chi- the Chinese government had both said, e- even suggested that there wasn't going to be any human to human broad transmission of this. You know, I think people are still trying to learn how this virus is moving and infecting people, etc. But certainly, I think a lot of the experts I've talked to have said the administration would have done well much earlier to give a very clear directive to the states saying and really explaining um, if we don't kind of unify together against this virus, um, we we're, we're not we're basically going to prolong the pain and we're going to prolong the amount of time at which we all have to be sheltering in place. I even heard someone compare it to designating one part of, of the swimming pool where the kids can can pee, um, which <laughs> <laughs> which it was so which is like sort of the situation here where it's like if you have like 30 states cracking down on travel and being in public spaces, but you don't have the rest of the states doing the same thing, then it's just going to make it into a situation where we're all kind of in this longer than we need to be, perhaps. Um, so, so yeah. I, yes, a very unpleasant swimming pool. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, 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 I mean, it's so true. You know, the health of one part of the population impacts the health of all of the population. And that was always true, but it's very clearly demonstrated right now. 
as people are learning stuff. Well, in the absence of sort of a, you know, overarching federal uh, plan, we're seeing some pretty surprising things out of the private sector and some state governments. Um, for example, drug maker Eli Lilly is offering both insured and uninsured patients access to most of its insulin products for no more than $35 a month. And in Connecticut, the governor ordered that no out-of-network surprise bills can be sent related to COVID-19 testing or treatment. If consumers get used to some of these things, won't it be a whole lot harder uh, to oppose these sorts of things that are currently being debated in Congress? It looks like, you know, all these huge fights, um, some of the stuff is just happening. It does kind of raise the question because when you have like insurance companies coming out and saying we're going to cover all of the costs for COVID treatment, um, and and then, you know, you you've previously heard them complaining about you know, the cost, this, this, this or that cost and how it's sort of unsustainable, it kind of raises the question of, well, if they can cover costs for people now or ease, ease burdens on people, is it going to be hard to go back to the previous environment? Um, it is kind of interesting because all of this has basically halted all of the efforts on the Hill that all of us were writing about for the last year and trying to take on surprise bills and lower drug prices. But I guess you could say the silver lining is that it has sort of sparked these um, movements by insurers um, and by drug companies to try to at least ease things for patients um, during this pandemic. I think it will be hard to roll back some of these things, and it will be hard from sort of a PR stance for the industry to argue, well, you know, it would be cruel to charge people for this particular disease, but not for all of these other ones. Um, I think that that's a tough argument to make it to a public that's already, you know, skeptical of the industry and, and questioning it over the past year and, and, and before. But I also think that uh, insurers and providers have gotten really creative in the past and figured out how to make lots of profits um, despite new rules and restrictions. So I think that, you know, a promise like, all testing and treatment will be covered. Sounds really good. I am very confident they will find ways to charge people for things with little loopholes or arguing that this isn't treatment for COVID. This is treatment for something, you know, that came out of it. I, I just think we should all be really um, on alert for, for those kinds of things. We've seen hospitals charging these like facility fees and NERs and it, it, there's there's always a way. <laughs> if I was a president, I would say that's very cynical, except that I'm a reporter and I would say I fully expect that, too. Um, we should we should take this moment to say goodbye to Bernie Sanders, who uh, suspended his presidential campaign this week. Um, you know, there are those I saw a lot of people on social media suggesting that, um, you know, that Bernie has really changed the debate when it comes to health care. But I feel like you know, what we're going through now is changing the debate so much more than anything that the Democrats have been fighting about for the last year. I mean, I assume you guys agree with me that when we come out of this, the debate on health care is going to be very different. Yes. You know, it, it, it's funny because you typically have this political debate over, um, you know, government involvement in health care. And is it a good or bad thing to have more people on government sponsored health plans? And that was, you know, a, a big part of the big Medicare for all debate that, as you said, Julie Sanders was instrumental in bringing that to the forefront. Um, but when you have kind of a, a crisis situation like this, Republicans start sounding a lot more like Democrats in terms of trying to get health insurance to people. And I think it does reflect kind of this, this shared belief at the end of the day that 
people should have access to health care and should have health coverage. And when you're facing a potentially deadly virus like this, you deserve to get health care. And um, that's kind of like all coming out. So in a way, you see Republicans like, for instance, the um, Trump administration has issued these Medicaid waivers to, I believe, 41 states now. And it, these waivers allow states to actually loosen a lot of the rules around um, enrolling people in Medicaid and also rules around um, what providers could participate. And it's just interesting because it's like sort of the opposite direction that the administration was going on Medicaid. I mean, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, they've been all about putting in work requirements and putting a higher fence around the Medicaid program. But the conversation has just really, really changed now that we're in this coronavirus situation. So I, I, it's just kind of like really striking to me now that Republicans are embracing a lot more things that, say, Bernie Sanders might have called for during the campaign and Republicans would have been all up in arms about it. Um, oh, you're, you're, you know, allowing for like fraud or waste to be introduced into the Medicaid program. But now their perspective has changed on that. I think at, at least at this very, at, the, at this moment in time, um, at the same, at the same time, they would probably argue that they worry that a situation like this would result in kind of a permanent expansion of public health programs. And of course, that's kind of the opposite of what, what they want to see, which is, you know, Seema Verma has repeatedly said she thinks Medicaid should be, you know, a, a safety net for the most vulnerable. And she doesn't want to see a broader swath of the population in Medicaid. Alice, you want to add to that sort of Bernie's contribution to the debate versus the coronavirus contribution to the debate? Sure. I mean, I I don't think it's versus. I think that um, Bernie has definitely seized on the current health situation as an illustration of his arguments, saying this perfectly shows that the whole rhetoric around you want to keep your health insurance. We shouldn't throw people off their health insurance for Medicare for all. We, you know, people like their private insurance and want to keep it. Well, that's all well and good until you lose your job. Uh, And when you lose your job, you lose your insurance often, um, almost always. And that's happening to millions of people right now. So it's kind of this um, perfect example of how you know, because our country ties insurance to employment for so many people, that that's a weakness there. And if there is like an actual accessible other option for people like the individual market in an affordable way with enough subsidies, et cetera, and with enrollment being easy enough, that that's one thing, but that's not true for a lot of people. So I think that um, his argument there will, I think, stick around longer. That's a really good point, Alice. Like it's really, um, it's really exposed a lot of the existing issues with our health insurance system, um, just the fact that um, it's tied to employment um, and that, you know, we're still not at a point where Congress would, both sides of the aisle really would be willing to do something like so revolutionary and, as to like upend this employer-sponsored healthcare system. The other thing I just wanted to add real quick is um, I remember back in March when, I believe when Congress was talking about the first coronavirus bill, Um, There was a lot of arguing, um, especially from Democrats, about the affordability issue and making tests affordable and vaccines affordable to people. That sort of has become less of an issue now because you you have seen every major insurer step up and say, we're going to waive the copays for testing. That was sort of what they initially said in the first wave. And then in the second wave, they've come back and said um, that we wouldn't charge for care related to COVID-19. Although I would point out that 
that it's probably going to result in less costs for private insurers compared to, say, Medicare. Like Medicare is going to be paying for the bulk of care because it is uh, more elderly Americans who would be on Medicare who are going to be generating the most expenses from this. Um, so I, I guess you could say it's probably a good way for these major insurers to look really good to the public and, and show like, hey, we're stepping up in the age of the coronavirus and not not to diminish that, like they, they certainly are. But um, at the end of the day, the, the actual like they, they may not have to actually cough up that much for care because the younger people who are presumably more on their plans aren't typically the most serious cases. Well, I actually want to pick up on that because that was my next question. Um, It's not to suggest that there aren't politics going on behind the scenes between hospitals and insurers and the federal government. The federal government has said it does not want to create, does not want to reopen enrollment on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, the 38 states run by the federal government. Instead, it wants people not to have comprehensive insurance, but to have insurance for just COVID-19 and testing and treatment. And it wants to pay for that through the $100 billion dollars. Um, that goes to the hospitals under the last rescue bill that the that the Congress um, uh, passed. Uh, Seema Verma was talking about this at one of the briefings this week. Uh, hospitals are not that thrilled that that money is going to be used, you know, sort of basically for direct patient care because a report from my colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation this week suggests that care could consume 40% of that total $100 billion. So we have this kind of, you know, internecine warfare going on among the hospitals and rural hospitals and public hospitals and private hospitals are all sort of vying for this money. Is there any equitable way to distribute it or to make sure that people get the care they need and don't go bankrupt? I think this is a really, really hard question because the the thing is, is you're seeing hospitals across the board hurting regardless of whether they're caring for COVID patients. Like I've talked to a number of hospitals in like Kansas City and other places where they only had like a handful of coronavirus patients or not even any, Um, but they've still like many other businesses been forced to halt most of their services. So they've had to stop elective surgeries. Um, A lot of the providers I talked to said they actually are only um, delivering maybe 30% of the services that they used to. And yet at the same time, they're in this like very weird bind because they can't lay off staff or furlough them because they're worried about preparing for, um, caring for COVID patients. Um, so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. So I, I sort of, when I saw all of this money that was going to hospitals, that was sort of exactly my question is it's going to be like this massive fight between, hospitals in states that are spiking. I mean, it's kind of like hospitals everywhere kind of have, they all have a case to make, right? For like why they should get funding um, because they're all in this like very weird environment where nothing is normal and they're not able to serve patients in the way that they were previously. While we're on the subject of things that are not equitably distributed, um, a number of stories this week noted that African-Americans in particular are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. In Michigan, for example, uh, African-Americans are 14 percent of the populations, but 41 percent of the deaths. Similar statistics um, are in Chicago and in New Orleans. There are lots of theories about this, that African-Americans are overrepresented among essential jobs that require significant public contact, that they're more likely to be 
poor and have limited access to medical care and more likely to suffer from pre-existing health conditions. Doesn't this all really just highlight the structural inequities in our healthcare system in general? Um, is this, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's awful. I don't want to say it's good, but maybe it will wake some people up to the, to the health inequities that have been a problem for generations. I think that the fact that it's now come up at multiple White House briefings could be a sign of that. I mean, you we were not seeing White House briefings discussing health inequities and, you know, the disproportionate impact on African-Americans before the pandemic. So that's that's one sign. But I have also been hearing a lot of concern both from lawmakers of color who've been speaking out about this and from uh, physicians of color that if this becomes seen as something that is primarily hitting communities of color, they're worried that it will be taken less seriously by the government. Um, so that, <laughs> I mean, we, we've seen that with past crises in this country. And so there, there is that fear now. I remember during the early days of the AIDS epidemic, it's like, well, you know, it's only at the, the very beginning, it was interestingly gay men and Haitians. Um, that was, those were basically the two, you know, most affected communities. And I remember, you know, there's a reason that the Ryan White bill is called, is named after Ryan White, because he was a, you know, he was a white kid from Indiana. And somehow that just shook everybody up. So that's a fair point. Paige. It's not a clean comparison, but, you know, people have also been um, pointing to how the government has responded to different drug addiction crises based on whether they primarily hit people of color or white people. Yeah, I mean, I, I to me, I guess this kind of just highlights or augments a reality that is kind of present every time we talk about health disparities, which is that primarily when you're seeing um, younger people with COVID having serious cases, they, they tend to have pre-existing conditions and you have higher rates of obesity, diabetes. I know obesity and diabetes in particular have been linked to uh, more serious cases of coronavirus and there are higher rates of the, of those in minority communities. So, and, and you know, air pollution. Yeah. I mean, asthma. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, as you've seen the virus spike in cities like Detroit or um, in New Orleans, where a higher percentage of the population has these pre-existing conditions and a higher percentage of the population are minorities. Um, it, it's not... I I guess it's not surprising to me that you're seeing um, that, you know, this disproportionate effect. Well, um, finally this week, I will say I did not have uh, using the pandemic as a way to ban abortion on my pandemic bingo card. Uh, we talked last week about how half a dozen red states are trying to ban abortion as a non-essential medical service. Now the Supreme Court has agreed with them, at least for Texas. Alice, what is the latest on this? You're following it. So a bunch of states have tried to implement these bans. The only place where it's currently in effect right now is Texas. Uh, it's been either blocked by courts in other states or it's um, the two sides, the state and the clinics, have come to an agreement about what kinds of uh, procedures can continue. So this is this is all around um different governors, as Paige was saying earlier, making very different decisions about what is an essential service that needs to continue and especially what's an essential medical procedure. And so, as we all know, we can't go to the dentist for our regular cleanings nowadays. We can't do these so-called elective procedures. Um, and states that were already, you know, pretty anti-abortion, pretty conservative, have taken uh, this moment to say, you know, abortion is an elective procedure. It is not essential. It should not be happening right now so as to conserve medical resources to care for coronavirus patients. Abortion providers respond 
one, it's absolutely essential. You can't just make a pregnant person wait a few months. Um, they won't be able to have an abortion at all in some circumstances. We're also seeing a lot of people in Texas where it has been banned temporarily traveling to other states, which in the middle of a pandemic is really dangerous and not recommended at all. Plus, a delay could also mean that somebody who could have gotten a medication abortion just taking a pill, which uses far less medical resources, um, you know, the provider isn't performing surgery, etc. Because of the delay, they'll now have to have a surgical abortion, which consumes more medical resources. So I think when the parties in Texas go back to court in the district court on Monday, some of those sort of detailed factual arguments will be at stake because this is on the merits of the case, whereas before it was arguing over a temporary restraining order. Interestingly, the appeals court has ruled now that in a public health emergency, states can temporarily suspend uh, other constitutional uh, rights and abortion is no different. Um, and rather than going to the Supreme Court with that, the the uh, in Texas, they're actually going to go back to the district court and basically try to carve out some exceptions, right? Yes. So the merits arguments happening on Monday, at the same time, they are asking for a narrower temporary restraining order so they can at least um, uh, start doing uh, abortion pills again and surgical abortions, but only in cases where a delay would mean that a woman wouldn't be able to get one at all because of Texas's cutoff. So, so I guess we will we will continue to follow this. Um, meanwhile, just quickly, abortion rights forces are trying to fight back. Uh, other than in court, um, the Guttmacher Institute has in- issued a series of protections it wants included in the next COVID nineteen funding bill that comes out of Congress. That seems like not a terribly doable strategy, um, given who controls the Senate and who's in the White House. Um, I guess they just want to sort of make the the, the public pronouncement here. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen we've seen both sides trying to get things into the into the congressional bills. I mean, we're we're in a situation right now in Congress where they basically have to vote everything by unanimous consent because they're not coming back to Washington to to debate this right now. And so, uh, knowing that someone's objection to one little thing can tank the whole bill, including this, you know, desperately needed funding for hospitals and and such. Um, You know, it it makes it a a pretty attractive vehicle to attach a lot of things onto for both sides. But we've seen in in the last fight that uh, attempts to do that were not successful for for certain uh, priorities, um, including, you know, an OSHA rule to protect healthcare workers, um, some more stuff around vote by mail, etc. All right. Well, we will see how that goes. Okay. That is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Paige, why don't you go first this week? This is a story um, by my colleagues, Carol and Johnson and Ariana uh, Cha, and it's called The Dark Side of Ventilators. Those hooked up for long periods face difficult difficult recoveries. And I think it's a particularly interesting story because in the whole conversation about 
uh, getting ventilators to hospitals, I think what's been lost a little bit is the, the really sad reality that once people are sick enough to actually be hooked up to a ventilator, they have a, a pretty uh, a pretty bad chance of actually surviving. Um, the rate is, is of death actually is somewhere between 50 and 80 percent um, medical experts think once somebody has been hooked up to a ventilator. Um, and in this story, my colleagues also kind of explore um, the, the realities for people who have received care on a ventilator and then go off of it and sort of the emotional and physical toll that that can have on those patients. Um, and so I just I recommend it as, as a good read. Um, if, if, in, unless you need some, some uplifting news in these COVID times, in which case I would not suggest reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken, Alice. Well, in other extremely depressing news, I would like to recommend um, a piece by some of my coworkers, um, our pod mate, uh, Joanne Kennan, as well as uh, Rachel Rubine and Susanna Luthi looked at nursing homes. Uh, the piece is called How Public Health Failed Nursing Homes. And it's just about how it's been kind of a perfect storm for coronavirus. This is a very vulnerable population that, you know, is is living in in close quarters in these group settings. Um, There's not good monitoring on who goes in and out of these facilities, both the workers and uh, family who visit. And because our country was really slow to ramp up testing, especially for people who were not showing symptoms, we're still barely testing people who are not showing symptoms. That allowed people who had the virus but who were not you know, visibly sick or didn't know they were sick to go into these nursing homes where it's just really had a devastating effect. Um, Nursing home workers have also really struggled to obtain the kind of protective equipment, masks and and et cetera, that um, hospitals are still struggling to obtain. And so nursing homes are even lower down on on the priority list for, for that kind of gear than hospitals we're just seeing the result, which is that these nursing homes, assisted living facilities have become hotspots in so many states. Well, mine is not quite as depressing. Uh, It is also from the Washington Post by my former housemate from a million years ago, Mark Fisher. It has the awesome headline, at least online, flushing out the true cause of the global toilet paper shortage amid coronavirus pandemic. And it's about why, even though there is in theory plenty of toilet paper available, a combination of the desire of people to control at least a little piece of what's going on and the inability to easily convert the toilet paper we all have in our offices and in public facilities to home use is causing, well, as we all know, a very serious shortage. There's also some very cool history about how toilet paper even came to be a necessary household staple. It is a lovely read, and I recommend it. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthalloneword at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rosner. Alice? At Alice Wolstein. Paige? At PW underscore Cunningham. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.